Let me pray for us once more. Father, thank you for the word that has just been read. We thank you, Lord, for this season that we have to meditate on the first advent. And we pray that as we look at this text, as we listen to this text, to this song being sung, that our hearts might be stirred up with greater faith in your son Jesus and greater affection for him, all for your glory. We pray all this in his name. Amen. You know, I love the fact that we observe Advent in this church. Every year we mark off the first four Sundays leading up to Christmas and we celebrate the coming of the Christ child. Now that usually comes in the form of weekly readings and the lighting of a traditional Advent wreath. Uh, we usually have a, a dedicated Advent sermon series. And four Sundays of Advent mean four opportunities to sing plenty of good Christmas songs. I love the worship during this time of year because we are singing songs that we don't normally sing in the other months of the year. We're singing songs about the coming of Emmanuel, God with us. We sing about shepherds watching their flocks at night when angels appear singing glory to God in the highest. We sing about a silent night, a holy night when Christ was born. We sing about joy to the world, peace on earth, goodwill towards men. Those are the kinds of, of hymns and carols we love to sing during this season. But, you know, it makes me wonder why we never sing a Christmas carol about the proud being scattered or about the mighty being thrown down or about the rich being stripped of all good things and sent away empty. How come we don't sing about that? I mean, when was the last time you sang a song during Advent about the inversion of civil society, about the reordering of our social fabric? I, I know it sounds kind of out of place to be singing about those things during Christmas, but that's actually the theme of the first Christmas hymn that was ever sung, known as Mary's Magnificat. It's, this hymn begins in verse 46 with Mary singing, my soul magnifies the Lord. And that's why it's been traditionally called the Magnificat, because that comes from the Latin for magnify. Now, stylistically, this is like any hymn, any psalm that you might find in the Old Testament. And as for content, like any Christmas hymn that we might sing, it's set in the context of the promised Christ child who is soon to come. But friends, what's different about this particular hymn, the big difference is the theme of this song, this theme of a great inversion in our social fabric, where things that are down are suddenly turned up, and things that are up are suddenly knocked down, and of course, all of that can be quite confusing. It can be quite disorienting. You don't know anymore what's up, what's upside down, or what's right side up. It's all very confusing. There's a term for that kind of confusion in aviation. It's called spatial disorientation. It's where a pilot could actually be flying a plane upside down without even knowing it. It happens when uh, the pilot is flying typically at night or maybe in bad weather where there's no visible horizon or no other marker telling you whether or not you're up or down. 
Now, thankfully, nowadays, there are instruments to be able to tell you if you're flying upside down, but there have been tragic cases where pilots, under the assumption that they were flying right side up, have made controlled descents straight into the ground. It's a tragedy. And if you think about it, it's a modern parable of the human experience. Humanity is flying at high speeds, navigating through life, progressing forward, while all the while unaware that we are upside down. We are headed for a crash, and it's going to be a, a complete shock for many when that happens. Now, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke through prophets, warning that we are flying upside down. But humanity as a whole has rejected their message, has disregarded the prophets because the kind of life that God's word calls us to live feels to us to be upside down. It contradicts our values. It challenges our presuppositions, our view of reality. So we reject it. We disregard it and we completely continue to fly upside down, completely unawares. When all along, all along, what the Bible is actually teaching is really right side up. It teaches us on how, on how to live our lives and, and how the world really is. But when you have spatial disorientation, or I guess in this case you would call it spiritual disorientation, you're convinced that you and your life and what you're doing is right side up. And so the word of God and what it teaches just seems to make no sense. It, 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 you read this and it seems contradictory. It seems backwards. But that's why, of course, the Son of God was sent into the world. The word became flesh. Jesus embodied God's truth. He proclaimed good news of a great inversion to come, a great reversal where down things are turned up and up things are turned down. Blessed are not the rich, but you who are poor. Blessed are not the full, but you who are hungry. Blessed are not you who are well, but you who weep. The blessed ones, according to Jesus, the blessed ones in this world are the weak, the small, the lowly. That's what Jesus taught. Does that make any sense to you at all? It doesn't make sense for a lot of people. I mean, sure, Christianity might hold some sentimental value, but most people will see Christianity as impractical, unrealistic. That's not how the world works. On a practical level, being poor and hungry are burdens. They're afflictions. They're not blessings. And so in the end, to many people in the world, the Bible's teachings, they sound archaic. They sound strange. They're, they're backwards. They're upside down. But here's the point. What if... What if the Bible is actually presenting life right side up and we're the ones who are flying upside down completely unawares? 
What if Jesus didn't come teaching some kind of alien concept, some kind of foreign reality, a completely novel outlook on life? What if his teaching about God, about what it means to be human, about, about who is truly blessed in this world, what if what he is teaching actually corresponds to true reality? What if the Bible is presenting life right side up? Well, I guess, I guess in order for us to see it, in order for us to believe it, we need to be flipped around. We need to be converted or more like inverted. Well, thank God that's exactly what Jesus came on earth to do. He came to bring a great inversion. And so as we listen this morning to Mary's Magnificat, we're going to hear a song that extols God's grace and power because of the inversion in our social fabric that is brought about by this baby in Mary's womb. So friends, let me show you three particular inversions in this morning's text. If you want to follow along, look in your bulletin, you'll see an outline. These are three ways that this baby boy has turned everything we know about reality right side up. The first inversion in Mary's song can be summarized like this. Because of her baby, the meek and lowly are looked upon as blessed. The meek and lowly are considered blessed. Listen to how she says it in verses 46 to 48. My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. Now, throughout church history and within various Christian traditions, she's commonly known as the Blessed Mother Mary. It's common enough that we end up taking it for granted about how strange that title actually is considering the circumstances that she finds herself in. So for us, so far removed from her context, we easily call her blessed. Oh, sure, she's the Blessed Mother Mary. But her contemporaries would have seen it completely differently. They would not have called her blessed. So let's just recall the context here, which we introduced last week as we were studying the previous passage. Back in verse 28, the angel Gabriel comes to her and tells her that she's going to conceive a son, the son of the Most High, and she will call him Jesus. Now, this is, of course, a surprise to her since she is still a virgin. She's betrothed to marry Joseph of Nazareth, but they have yet to be intimate. So how in the world can she conceive? Well, the angel goes on to explain that the Holy Spirit is going to overshadow her. And by a miraculous conception, she will be with child. And this child shall, will be called holy. He'll be called the Son of God. And then Gabriel tells Mary that her relative Elizabeth, in, in her old age, has also miraculously conceived. And that she is now in her sixth month, suggesting to Mary that, hey, you can go see for yourself you can go visit Elizabeth and learn that nothing is impossible with God. And so our passage takes place right after that. Now Mary goes and she visits Elizabeth who is pregnant with John the Baptist. And there's this 
powerful moment that happens when she arrives at Elizabeth's home where the prenatal John hears the voice of Mary, the mother of his Lord, and prenatal John leaps for joy in his own mother's womb. Look with me at verse 44. This is Elizabeth speaking. She says, For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Now remember, Elizabeth is over six months pregnant by now. I'm sure by now she has already felt her baby move and kick within her womb, but, but this is different. She could sense her baby leaping for joy. For joy. This fetus was expressing emotion, the emotion of joy, which, by the way, would make no sense if the Bible viewed the unborn fetus as a non-person. Because non-persons don't have emotions. Non-persons don't leap for joy. But unborn John does. And it's because, as we're told by Gabriel back earlier in chapter 1, verse 15, that John would be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. So it's the Holy Spirit energizing John, giving him the recognition of Jesus in his presence. Now in, this, in the scriptures, if you look throughout the Old Testament scriptures, the Holy Spirit never fills non-persons. He only fills people. So the unborn John was a human person in his mother's womb, filled with the Holy Spirit. And if that's the case for John, well, then that would be true for everyone else. The unborn are human persons in their mother's womb, and of course, deserving of our love and protection. Now, this unborn John supernaturally recognizes and responds to the presence of another unborn fetus, another person, his Lord Jesus. The Son of God incarnate, he recognizes that he's in the room. John's leaping serves to foreshadow his future role as the first one to recognize and respond to Jesus as the Messiah when he finally does begin his public ministry 30 years later. He's the forerunner of Christ. He's the first to recognize Christ. It didn't happen on the banks of the Jordan. It happened in Elizabeth's house when they were both in the womb. So now, with her baby giving testimony to the identity of the Lord while in utero, Elizabeth herself supernaturally now sees and believes as well. So we're told in verse 41 that she is also filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaims, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. Now remember who she's talking to here. This is little Mary the soon-to-be unmarried teen mom. In a few months, when the baby bump begins to show, she's going to be the subject of village gossip. She's going to become a town scandal. And now you're telling me that this social pariah is going to be considered blessed among women? I mean, we saw how last week, Mary is not from a well-to-do family, and she's betrothed to Joseph, who as well is not wealthy. So they are a poor couple from a lowly village in the backwaters of Galilee, which 
Galilee was already a lowly region of ancient Palestine. So Mary is a nobody from Nazareth who's about to become a somebody, but for all the wrong reasons. She's about to become a scandal. That's how she would have been perceived by everyone else, by the eyes of the world. But the world's eyes, of course, have been affected by spiritual disorientation, which is why it's so shocking to call someone in Mary's shoes blessed among women. Now, perhaps you haven't really given much thought to how Mary is blessed. I mean, most of you, like me, you probably grew up in a Protestant evangelical tradition that gave little regard to Mary. We don't really talk about Mary. We don't really show her the honor that she's due. So let's, let's consider just how blessed she is to be the mother of Christ. I mean, just think about it. The Lord Jesus' face will for all eternity bear a striking resemblance to Mary. Think about that. There will not be another human being in all of human history who will share such a close resemblance to the Son of God in his physical form. What an honor to be Mary, the mother of the Son of God. And look at what Elizabeth says about Mary in verse 45. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Unlike my husband here, who didn't believe Gabriel, blessed is this little girl who believes the angel Gabriel and what he says. Mary is blessed to serve as a model of courageous faith for all believers in every generation to come. That is such a huge honor that we shouldn't downplay, we shouldn't overlook. But now on the other hand, though, those of you who, who may have been raised Catholic should take note of what Mary says in verse 47. Notice there that she says her spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Now, that's not what you would expect sinless people who had immaculate conceptions to say. They don't need a Savior. Only sinners need saviors. So it's very telling that Mary says that she needs a Savior. She calls God her Savior. Yes, she is special. Yes, she should be honored, but she is not perfect. Like us, she's a sinner, also in need of a gracious Savior. But the fact that Mary is one of us, what that means now is that her song, the, Magnif the Magnificat, is really a song that any of us can sing. This is the song of every Christian. Because on the one hand... I am a meek and lowly sinner like Mary in need of a gracious Savior. But at the same time, like Mary, the Bible says, I'm blessed in Christ with every spiritual blessing from the heavenly places. There is this dual dynamic here. This is the Christmas, the Christian song. And at the same time, of course, it's Mary's song. And, and notice with me just the, the wonder and the amazement in her voice. 
She's thinking, I'm a nobody. I'm meek and lowly. And yet God has taken notice of me. He has blessed me. He has exalted me to this position of tremendous honor to be the mother of my Lord. Wow. My soul magnifies. My soul rejoices. Friends, do you hear the surprise in her voice? Friends, if you being a Christian is not a surprise, if it makes perfect sense to you, if there's no surprises there, if there's no amazement that God would save you, if, if you're saying to yourself, well, yeah, of course I'm a Christian. I, I was born into a Christian family. I, I, I've been going to church all my life. I, I believe all the right things. I do my best to obey God's word. I'm certainly not perfect, but I certainly do try. If that's your thinking, if it's just plainly obvious that you of all people would be a Christian, then I'm not sure if you've actually grasped the gospel. Your Christianity seems to amount to really just mere religion, where those who have the right parents, the right upbringing, the right beliefs and behaviors are obviously the saved ones. That kind of faith is a religion that the world can understand. The world would consider that right side up. The world would say, of course you're a Christian. I mean, you grew up in church. You have Christian parents. You, you talk like a Christian. You act like a Christian. You even look like a Christian. Of course, of course you're a Christian. That's, that makes sense to the world. But whenever the world is confronted with the real gospel, with real Christians, it gets confused because everything in the real gospel looks upside down to the world. Looking at Mary, this poor peasant girl from no good Nazareth, soon to be surrounded by scandal and shame, the world would take one look at her and say, oh, she's cursed. Her life is ruined. But the Bible says, no, generations will call her blessed because of this great inversion. God doesn't look upon the regarded. He doesn't look upon those with a strong case for why they should be saved. No, God's eyes are instead on the disregarded, the meek and lowly. Those who are amazed that God would even look at them in the first place, to look at them in their humble estate. His eyes are the ones, are on the ones who say to themselves, never in a million years would I be a Christian, but for the grace of God. But for the grace of God. That is the attitude of a Christian. And that's the theme of this song, the grace of God. And let's just keep listening to it. Because if, you're, if, you're, if this is going to be your song, for you to sincerely sing this, then, then you need to just be prepared as to how revolutionary Christianity is. Because this gospel does turn everything on its head. So let's... Let's consider now the second inversion that Jesus brings. Because of Mary's baby, this is the second thing, the rich and mighty are brought low and scattered. In other words, those who are on top are going to be shocked to discover themselves on the bottom. Mary's song is not a sentimental Christmas carol. It is not a song full of Christmas cheer. Look with me starting in verse 51. He has shown strength with his arm. 
He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. Mary's saying in verse 49 that God is mighty, he has done great things, but then she gives this warning in verses 51 to 53, not to make the common mistake of thinking that just because God is great, he must be partial to the great. Don't think because God is mighty that he favors the mighty. Quite the contrary. It says that he scatters those who are proud in the thoughts of their hearts. And what, what's their pride rooted in? It says here, it's, it's their might and their money. Their might and their money. They're sitting on thrones full of, sitting on thrones full of purses and full stomachs. They have every human reason to consider themselves blessed. They have it all together. But behold, we're told that this baby in Mary's womb is bringing a kingdom in which the rich and mighty will be brought low and scattered. There's this great illustration later on in Luke's gospel of this very phenomenon. At the end of chapter 16, Luke, uh, Jesus tells this parable of the rich man and Lazarus. The rich man thought he had it all together. He had the money, he had the might, he had a full stomach. It says that he feasted sumptuously every day. While Lazarus, on the other hand, laid at the rich man's gate begging for table scraps. Now, if you were to ask the average person back then or even today to assess the situation, if you were to ask them, who in that scenario would you consider to be blessed and who would be cursed, well, of course, the answer is going to be unanimous. No one would have considered Lazarus blessed. No one wants to be in his shoes. No one wants to be in his position. We all want to be in the rich man's blessed shoes. But, of course, we wouldn't be as selfish or as cruel as that man. We, we would tell ourselves that we would actually do something for Lazarus. We, we would actually take him into our home. We would feed him. We would clothe him. We would try to be a kinder, kinder, more generous rich man. But of course, that still misses the point. That kind of thinking still assumes that the rich man is more blessed than Lazarus. That those with money and might are in a better position than the poor and lonely, even if only so that they can be a blessing to others. But so long as your view of blessedness corresponds with one's socioeconomic status, you're still thinking like the world. Mary's song is still going to sound strange to you as if it were being sung in a foreign language, as if it sounds backwards or upside down. And that same inversion that's happening in Mary's song is happening in that parable in chapter 16. The tables get turned. Everything gets flipped around. Lazarus gets exalted to Abraham's bosom, and the rich man is cast down to suffer in Hades. The rich and the mighty are brought low and scattered. Now, I, I do want to be clear here. Nowhere in Scripture 
is money or might in themselves being condemned as if, as if it were a sin simply to be rich or to be in a position of power and influence. Let's be clear. The Bible never says it's wrong to be rich, but you could argue that it does say it's wrong to die rich, that it's wrong to end your life with a hoard of wealth because you simply laid up for yourselves treasures on earth. That would be wrong. There's a danger that accompanies wealth and power. The conveniences of the rich and the social standing of the powerful can be temptations to grow too independent of God and too insensitive towards the needs of other people. Jesus taught that it is difficult for those to have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. He taught that it is easier for a camel to go through the eyes of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom. And again, not because wealth is evil in itself, but it's because wealth tends to breed independence. A self-reliant, godless independence that makes it difficult for anyone to enter the kingdom by faith in Christ alone. Or you could say by dependence in Christ alone. The wealthy tend to depend on their wealth and not Christ alone. And so that's what the rich need to beware. That's what we need to beware. Because let's be honest, the vast majority of us in this congregation are rich compared to the vast majority in the world. And we are in positions of power and influence. Or we will be once you graduate with that professional degree. We need to listen carefully to this very aspect of Mary's song. God, in stark contrast to the world, is not partial to the rich, not partial to the powerful or the proud. The world is. The world is biased towards those categories of people. That's what we're told to chase. That's what we're told to become. But how many people have crashed and burned flying after pride, power, and wealth, flying upside down without even knowing it? In the beginning of Luke, of his gospel, we're told that he dedicated this book to a man named Theophilus. Commentators think that he was likely the benefactor funding Luke's project this effort to compile an accurate narrative of all that took place concerning Jesus of Nazareth. So it's very likely that the, that the original recipient of this gospel, that he possessed power, wealth, and had a lot to be proud of. So Luke knows his audience, and he is not pulling any punches here. He is not trying to start off, start off his gospel narrative with some kind of sentimental Christmas song. He, no, he is he's starting it off with a stark warning to his audience. Theophilus, you've got to consider the God of this gospel. He's not impressed by your money. He's not impressed by your might. Yes, he is great, but that doesn't mean that he is partial to the great. In God's eyes, the rich and the powerful are no better than the poor and powerless. That's why God chose a poor and lowly girl from Nazareth to be the mother of the Son of God. She's a surprising choice on purpose 
in order to rebuke the world's categories of who God is and whom he blesses. Friends, is this the God that you thought you were coming here to worship? If you were expecting to come here today to worship a God who gathers the proud, who exalts the mighty, who satisfies the rich, then you're looking for the wrong God here. That's not the Son of God that Mary gave birth to. Jesus came for the very purpose of inverting those categories. So let's now consider the, the third and final inversion that he brings. Because of Mary's boy, the poor and powerless are both lifted up and filled up. Look at verse 52. God has exalted those of humble estate. Verse 53. He has filled the hungry with good things. What's Mary saying? She's saying the God of the gospel lifts up the poor and lowly. He reminds those who have little and are little that their smallness doesn't preclude them from God's blessing. Now, of course, the world has a very different message. The world is always telling the poor and powerless that they don't count. They don't have the education. They don't have the skills. They don't have the pedigree or the connections to really matter in this world. And religion is really the same thing. Religion says that it's the decent people, it's the educated people, the hardworking and moral people. They're the ones who get God. They're the ones who enter the kingdom. But then Christianity comes around and says that salvation is an act of sheer grace. The gospel says that Decent people, moral people, powerful people are no better off than poor and powerless people who struggle with their sins. Because no one earns their way into the kingdom. No one merits salvation. At the foot of the cross, we're all on level ground. We're all sinners in need of a Savior. And the blood of Jesus is sufficient. For all of us. Through his life, death, and resurrection, he purchased the salvation that none of us could pay for. It can only be received freely by grace through faith. That's the good news of the gospel. This is how the gospel lifts up the poor and powerless. By, by taking those who are already humbled, those who have no impression that they can impress God, those who know they have nothing and are nothing, the gospel comes freely to those and lifts them up to a seat of heavenly honor. You know, there's another illustration in Luke's gospel of this very kind of inversion. It takes place later on in chapter 21, and that's where Jesus is at the temple courts. And there he sees rich men putting sizable gifts into the offering box. But then comes this poor little widow who puts in all that she has, two small copper coins, and then Jesus turns to his disciples, points her out, and he says, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them, all of those rich guys. Now, the world is going to hear that and just hear a bunch of sentimental words. Okay, that sounds nice. You know, you might have some kind of metaphor there. But it's, it's, it's meaningless. Because no way her two coins are actually more than all that money that the rich men were dropping in. The world doesn't see that. 
no way, that, 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 that can't be. But what if? What if that's because we're looking at things upside down? I think that's what Jesus is implying. Jesus is saying that this poor widow is the one who is actually truly rich in my Father's kingdom. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom. Blessed are you who are hungry, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep, for you shall laugh. The last shall be first. The first shall be last. If, friends, that doesn't, if that, if that doesn't make any sense to you, it's likely that you're still looking at things upside down. Jesus is describing for us right-side-up reality. And if you want to see it, if you want to believe it, then you need to be turned around. You need to be flipped around. You need to be converted. You need to be inverted. Unless you are converted or inverted, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 18, verse 3. Friends, if much of Jesus' teaching still makes little sense to you, if it still seems just too impractical, too unrealistic, if you're still not sure if living a life that observes all that he commands would actually be joyful and fulfilling and life-giving, then perhaps you still need to be converted. Perhaps you still need to experience this great inversion. You may be experiencing right now that spiritual disorientation. But by God's grace, Jesus can straighten you out. But just realize, be aware that being converted, being turned around can feel like your life and all of your assumptions are, are now flipped upside down. Becoming a Christian, you have to understand, can result in a lot of internal tension. And also, potential tension with other people in your life. Because everything is getting flipped around. But just think about the alternative. What's the alternative? Do you want to continue flying at high speed, navigating through life unaware that you're actually upside down? You can ignore this gospel if you want. You can choose to ignore Christ, but then just find out the hard way that you have been flying upside down when your life ends in a tragic crash. The Puritans used to say that the same sun melts the wax but hardens the clay. The same sun melts the wax but hardens the clay. The same gospel will lift up some but cause others to go crashing down. So which is it for you? Now that you have listened to Mary sing her song, the question is, how will you respond? Is the gospel melting you, humbling you, stirring up greater faith and affection for Christ? Or is this message hardening you? Does it offend you? Does it sound foolish and totally upside down? Which is it? That God would pass over the proud, the powerful, and the rich in order to show favor to a poor, lowly girl. That is truly a foretaste of a great inversion that has and is to come. It's going to happen. 
And the only question is if you're going to be lifted up or knocked down when it happens. Let me pray for you. Father, I pray that you would open up the eyes of everyone here to see the reality that in our lives, without you and your grace, we're upside down. We're flying at high speeds, bound for a crash. What we need is to be flipped around. We need to be turned around. We need to be converted. Oh, Lord, help us to see Christ for who he really is, what he has accomplished in being our Savior. And may all of us be turned around to see you and to see life for what it really is. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.